Joe, said old Jarvis, looking out of his window. It was his ground floor back. Joe, you seem to be very hot, Joe, and you have got no wig. Yes, sir, quoth Joseph, pausing and resting upon his spade. It's as hot a day as ever we see, but the celery must be got in, or there'll be no autumn crop, and... Well, but, Joe, the sun's so hot, and it shines so on your bald head, it makes one wink to look at it. You'll have a coup de soleil, Joe. A what, sir? No matter. It's very hot working, and if you'll step indoors, I'll give you... Thank you, Your Honour. A drop of beer will be very acceptable. Joe's countenance brightened amazingly. Joe, I'll give you my old wig. When the weather's hot, nothing cools you down like a used wig. Just feel those fibers nestle against your sweaty skin. Mm, What's that texture? Why, it's a combination of goat, horse, and human hair. That itch means it's working. Those were the opening paragraphs of Jerry Jarvis's wig by Richard Barham, a.k.a. Thomas Inglesby. A.k.a. R.H. Barham, which is the name used in the book in which we found this story, or rather, where our guest found this story. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by writer of TV shows such as Breeders, Kiss Me First, and Dates, the creator of Skins, Jamie Britton. Hello! Glad to have you back on the show, and thank you for choosing this wig story, or at least choosing the book that it's in. Of course, I am Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, and I'm Chris Lackey. You're joining us here on Strange Studies of Strange Stories. A few months ago, Jamie, you sent us an email with the subject, I literally found this creepy book in the attic and some photos of the table of contents. It's just called The Mystery Book. Yeah, we actually covered a bunch of the stuff that's in there. The monkey's paw, the upper berth, green tea. Even more than that, the turn of the screws in there. Uh Um, A whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, a bunch of them were referenced as well in supernatural horror and literature, which is why we were covering them back then. But there were some in here we hadn't covered, so it was perfect for us. How did you come across the book, Jamie? It was up in the attic when we were going through some cleaning, and I've since investigated the origin of this book, and I I found out it was bought by my partner's grandfather some time ago, and he sort of uh, bought it at an auction, I think. And it's a lovely, enormous book full of stuff. It's got a nice cover with a cloak and dagger on it, and it's kind of just, it just Mm. looks like a cool, creepy, Lovecraftian book. But when I opened it, I didn't go insane from the contents. I was just (laughs) met with a a whole bunch of um, crazy-looking stories. And I thought you were the guys to uh, send it to. It came out in uh, on the date on it. I've just have it here. It's got some excellent creepy engravings in it as well. 1934, edited by one HDT. He's got a name. I can't be bothered to look it up. But uh, he has a quite good introduction where he sort of sets the stories in context, which was quite fun. And he kind of talks about the reason why we we read horror stories and the reason why we read supernatural literature, which is you know he does it in quite a, a way which is quite modern to me. Sort of saying, oh, it gives us a sort of safe space. And there's one bit here where he says, I'm just reading quoting from the introduction here when he's talking about supernatural lit- literature. Very often the explanation of these phenomena are left to the reader's imaginations, and sometimes indeed we feel that there is no explanation whatsoever that will prove satisfactory. In other words, our interest is focused on the thing that happens and not so much how it happens, which I thought was a very good um, mm. way of describing uh, strange fiction, really, weird, weird literature. I thought that was quite good. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. His name is H. Douglas Thompson, the editor of that book. The synopses of the various stories within are pretty tempting. All of them sound good, the way that they're described. But this one, of course, jumped out at me right away because it's about a cursed object. 
Uh, we do have a bit of a history with periwigs on the show. <laughs> we chose it without having read it. And uh, it turned out to be a pretty fun one. That reading that you heard at the top, that was read by Rafe Ball. Rafe is an awesome guy, and he did a really cool bit of research. Now, we heard the opening of the story that he read, but right before that, there's an epigraph. It says, quote, the wig's the thing. The wig, the wig. Old song. That's the accreditation. Old song. I thought that was a joke when I first read it. And we probably would have glossed over it, but because Rafe is awesome, he went into the internet research rabbit hole and found the actual song, and it's called The Wig Gallery, also known as The Wisdoms in the Wig. By a composer named Charles Dibdin from the late 1700s, the most prolific of his time with over 600 songs to his name. Wow. Which maybe explains why he's writing about wig shop owners. <laughs> now, Rafe has not only tracked down what the song was, but he also sent us the sheet music. Yeah. When you read the lyrics, there are several verses, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it actually is relevant to this story. So if you knew it at the time, I think you would have made a connection between what that song is talking about and the themes of the story. You guys want to hear what it sounds like? What? I actually have my piano right here. I'm, you know, I'm reorganizing and so oh, it's out. You don't, you don't have to do that. I know I have the sheet music right here. I'm a little rusty. That's, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, let's give this a shot. All right. Walk in, walk in, each bow and bell. Hear wisdom, virtue, truth we sell. Nay, think not high, a falsehood tell. I deal not, sir, in raillery. I deal in wigs, a curious wear. In which gray, red, black, brown, and fair may suit their features to a hair in this a gay wig gallery the wigs the thing the wig the wig the wigs the thing the wig the wig when portly persons claim their pig or gutsling aldermen look big I do not say that they are not wise I only say in vulgar eyes the wisdom's in the wig the wisdom's in the wig, the wig, the wig, the wig, the wisdom's in the wig, the wig, the wig, the wig, the wisdom's in the wig. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. I feel like the veil is being pierced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing a whole new spectrum of reality after hearing that. <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> well, let's learn a little about this author. Yes. So in the uh, book itself, there's a little picture of him. I'm going to say a little a drawing of him. I'm going to say he looks a bit like a plump Pete Postlethwaite. That's how I'm going to <laughs> Richard Barham, 1788 to 1848, is perhaps better known as Thomas Ingoldsby, the author of the Ingoldsby legend. He was at one time a minor canon of St. Paul's and delved deeply into the medieval lives of the saints. He was so struck by the grotesque and comic aspect of some of these that he wrote them up in his own fashion and gained instant popularity in spite of charges of irreverence. <laughs> charges of irreverence. You were here by charge with irreverence. <laughs> the stories and poems he's famous for are mostly described as whimsical. I think that's appropriate for this story. Yeah. It's humorous, also satirical in that it's making some social commentary, I thought. Oh, yeah. Now, you said, Jamie, that this reminded you of the Adams Family? Yeah, I mean, the way he writes is so crazy. It's so over the top. His, his 
sentences and his language are as elaborate as possible. And what it reminded me of is the first time I saw the Adams Family movie, right? So when I was a kid, I saw the Adams Family on TV. They used to show it at six o'clock after Neighbours, the old 60s sitcom. Yeah. That's what the Adams Family was to me. And then I remember catching on TV the Adams Family movie from the early 90s, right? Raul Ju- Julia and mm-hmm. all that. And I was watching the beginning of that movie where it's the lawyer turning up at the house and he ends up sword fighting with Gomez and all that sort of stuff. Right. And I remember not understanding what I was supposed to be seeing here. Like, I couldn't work out whether it was supposed to be scary or funny or or right. what it was doing. And it was because I was six and I just sure. didn't have the level of sophistication <laughs> to understand that the movie was operating on a kind of ironic level. Uh-huh. And that is what I felt like reading this story. I felt like a six-year-old <laughs> watching The Adams Family being like, is this, is this funny? Is this... Is this scary? Is this, you know, is this real? Am I supposed to be laughing? Am I supposed to be horrified? It just felt like something beamed in from some other place and it completely weirded me out. That is such a good way to put it, though, because there are, when you know jokes are going on, but it's such an alien culture. There's clearly a ton of stuff in this story that your eyes just fly past because you can tell it's based on references to stuff. Sure. that you don't understand and never yeah. will understand and perhaps no one ever will. So it's kind of unusual in that regard. Well, let's jump into it. Our story begins with a bald gardener, Joseph Washford, working outside when the owner of the estate, Jerry Jarvis, sees him in the hot sun and thinks, that guy needs a wig. <laughs> Joe would like a beer, but Jerry can see what he really needs is a wig. Which is a bit of comedy right out of the gate and full of social commentary. It immediately made me think of these canned food canned food drives that happen around the holidays mm-hmm. when everybody contributes by ridding their cupboards of things they didn't even know were in there, you know, was in there anymore. You know, thinking, you know, if I was poor, I'd be really grateful for nine cans of cranberry sauce and some water chestnuts. <laughs> that would make an excellent meal. <laughs> A lot of times these drives have to say, please stop giving us the things that you don't want to eat. Yeah. Now he tells Joe to come in and Mrs. Witherspoon will give him this old wig. Not to put too fine a point on his poverty. Joe has to put on his old tattered coat to go inside, patched up in different colors. That's a scene that's a little like what Jamie was talking about, where there are lots of jokes about the coat. I don't think I was getting. No. I think a good example is describing how he put how he puts his coat on. Uh-huh. He says, Joseph Washford inserted his wrists into the corresponding orifices of the tattered garment and with a steadiness of circumgyration to be acquired <laughs> only by long and sufficient practice, swung it horizontally over his ears and settled into it. I mean, that to me is just completely <laughs> hair-raising. <laughs> yeah, but if you can track it all and then reconstruct it like animation in your head, it presents a, fu- a kind of funny comical image of him swaying around while he's doing this. Yeah. But it's uh, it's a translation. And, and at its best, it has that thing that almost um that good nonsense rhyme and nonsense verse does which i think this must be either an influence on or, or influenced by where you kind of feel like you're walking a sort of dizzying tightrope where you're being punched around by all this crazy wording and you don't quite know when you're going to come down <laughs> now she gives him this old brown wig and it has a little tail on the back a style that they used to call a brown george <laughs> in, in modern terms i think a brown george is when you're out of toilet paper and you have to use a dollar bill is that right oh god <laughs> If that's not what it's called, that definitely be should be what it's called. But what even the wife is a jerk. She she won't give him the beer, she gives him the wig instead. She says, Go get a drink at the pump outside and get lost. And in that moment he thinks about throwing the wig into the pigsty and cursing, but it says he got the better of Satan and he held on to it. 
this old wig, the color of overbaked gingerbread. Important to note that this is a clergyman writing this because when I'm thinking, when I heard about it initially, a cursed wig, I'm thinking about Friday the 13th, the series. Mm -hmm. Like the wig renders you beautiful, but it has to be fed the scalps of models or something. <laughs> I had very dark things going on in my mind. But the sins that are presented in this story, it's like pretty mild stuff. Oh, yeah. He was going to get rid of this gift he was given, and that was satanic, you know, <laughs> which actually makes it funner, funnier because all the sins are pretty minor. Initially. Initially, yeah. Joe reconsiders and thinks that the old wig is better than nothing. A pivot in perspective, he says the wig was like ancient Rome, majestic in decay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the wig was calling out to him or something. Yeah. It, all it took was being with it long enough to start admiring it like the precious. <laughs> And we get a little rundown on who Jerry Jarvis is, the gifter of the wig. It says he was a gentleman by act of parliament, one of that class of gentlemen who, disdaining the bourgeois-sounding name of attorney at law, are, by a legal fiction, denominated solicitors. Another joke that took me a while to puzzle out, but was funny. He's saying it's a legal fiction because doesn't soliciting mean trying to persuade somebody of something or some kind of entreaty? And he writes, if you don't pay my bill and costs, I'll send you to jail is a pretty energetic entreaty. <laughs> <laughs> He's not really having to work so hard, this lawyer, you know, the way that like a sex worker might solicit you. Sure. He says there is a Latin infinitive solicitare, which means to make anxious. And maybe in that sense, the right to call him a solicitor. He's a super rich dude because as a solicitor, he gets a cut of everybody's business somehow. However, the sheer amount of wealth he has, nobody can really account for how he would have all of that, even with him being everybody's attorney. So it seems that he's fairly well liked, but everybody pretty much agrees this guy sold his soul to the devil. That's the only way to explain it. Now with the wig, Joe goes out to work again, harvesting celery. In like the Stephen King version of this story, or even like the Goosebumps version of this story, it would have been like he was a murderer, or he spilt some demon blood on his wig or something like that. <laughs> or, you know, there would have been a more concrete origin story for the evil wig. Yeah. And you never get one. He's just this annoying guy. <laughs> right. Like... Well, you know, except this one moment, Right, we come back to Joe and he's got the wig on and he's at work harvesting that celery and Jarvis is at the window again. It says, looking at him with complacency and the author asks, what drove him to make so grand a gift? It is natural for a rich person to do this. It says, when you steal a bunch of leather, you might as well give somebody some shoes. It's just good politics. <laughs> but it also says, perhaps he had other reasons. Mm -hmm. Was this a cursed item he inherited? It's not explained. No. But maybe he wanted to get rid of it. We don't know. Could be. But it's funny you say that. I initially right away thought of... Uh, isn't there an Outer Limits where he gets a serial killer's glass eye or something? Or, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a serial killer's gloves and now you want to strangle everybody. Yeah. Right. Even adaptations of Frankenstein, it's that abnormal brain that goes into his head. So mm. I thought it would be something like that. Abnormal, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, Joe gets a thought to steal an apple from the tree. Something he would never have done before. He wouldn't even consider it. But a voice says to him, Jarvis is taking some snuff right now. You can totally get away with it. Just take the apple. Snatch it. <laughs> Pretty intense sin, stealing that apple. I mean, obviously it's a Garden of Eden reference. Mm. That's the first crime, the first transgression. But I was laughing at him being so conflicted over stealing an apple that's hanging on a tree outside just because it's on these grounds. However, then I thought about it some more and I was like, what if somebody came over, we had them over for dinner or something, and when they left, we were a couple apples shy. How would I feel about that? <laughs> that would be a pretty weird, pretty weird pull. Yeah. You wouldn't mention it, but you'd never forget it, would you? No. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. They could have asked. You would have given them the apples. That wasn't a big deal. Yeah. But the fact that they took them without asking, that's what really would get my craw. 
Yeah, you'd be wait- you'd be waiting to hear them say that, wouldn't you? You'd be waiting to see. Oh, by the way, I had a couple of apples. You'd be like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. But if they never said it, it's like what the f, man. Now we're coming into Aikman territory. <laughs> it, and then- you never broach it, and they never mention it, and you live your whole life without talking about it. <laughs> and then they say the, s- the snake told me it would be fine. <laughs> snake. Well, speaking of the snake, the tail of this wig, it sort of curls up and whispers in his ear. Yeah, I think. I love how it's described as well. It says, his thirst seems supernatural when at this moment his left ear experienced a slight and tickling sensation, such as we are assured is occasionally produced by an infinitesimal dose in homeopathy, which I rather liked. Uh-huh. Like, they don't they don't say that anymore in homeopathy. <laughs> they don't say it tickles. Like, that has been ironed out of the process. But I, I like the, uh, as though a daddy long legs were whispering burning in his tympanum. Before he knows what's going on, he has snatched an apple off the tree. Yes. And he hears shrill laughter and then pulls the wig from his head and runs out of the garden. So commercial break here. It's inserted in the text. There's a little line. What do you guys think of this uh, story so far? I was trying to like work out what I think this story's analog is in the modern era because it is bonkers right it's really mad pick a sentence at random and there's some bonkers thing going on there (laughs) and the thing the thing is i eventually got to it while i was cooking dinner earlier it reminds me of prog rock not even good prog rock but like bad rick wakeman yes emerson (laughs) lake and palmer prog rock yeah and i mean that because I think it's I think it's the right one because I think what makes prog rock kind of at turns impressive and annoying it's obsessed with the self regarding process of something right it's not about communicating a musical idea to you it's about bringing something into that and and luxuriating in it in a kind of masturbatory way (laughs) you know Uh and that's what this story feels like to me it's kind of insufferable but also compelling at the same time you know (laughs) you can't can't deny that keith emerson couldn't play a mean keyboard you know sure that's just that's just a matter of note but to hear him do it for 45 minutes on a version of um, Modest Mazursky's Pictures of an Exhibition in, in Jazz Fusion style you know, that's a different thing. And I slightly feel like I'm being forced to watch that while I'm reading this story. Sure. Absolute. Lovecraft would have loved it. Because it's so self-reflexive and all over itself. At home, Joe is worried. He starts stealing apples. What next? Milk? Eggs? Cutting the throat of a sheep? He, he Now, he dreams all of these things, that he's doing all of that stuff, and it's yes. that exact moment from American Werewolf in London. The things <laughs> the wig is making him think of. I have to say that when something's annoyed me, or someone's annoyed me in the news or something, I watch that scene from American Werewolf in London <laughs> where the pig Nazis burst into the house and machine gun everyone to death. It's such a... It's such an excellent, like, purging method just to kind of watch that. And it's so loud and horrible. I highly recommend it as a, as yeah. a sort of anti-mindfulness. Joe awakens from his dream and his wife can see that he's troubled. Joe sees that the wig is next to him in bed <gasps> and he didn't put it there. His wife tells him, I put it there. I thought it would make a good nightcap for you. I enjoyed the in- the incredibly authentic way in which her dialogue is, is written. <laughs> This is some capital working class talk. What ails thee, man? cried the usually incurious Miss Watchford. What be the manner with thee? Thee hast done nothing but grunt and growl all tonight long, and now thee dost stare as if thee saw some it. What bees it, Joe? I can feel the pulse of the street in that dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I mean, just that the, they have the trope of him waking up with the wig next to him. <gasps> it's there. <laughs> 
<laughs> and there it lay, the little sinister-looking tail impudently perked up like an infernal gnomon on a satanic dial plate. Larceny and oversight shown in every hair of it. <laughs> the breaking of eggs. Yes. Oversight. Oversight, yes. The next day is cloudy and gloomy and Joe's going back to work and he's feeling super guilty about taking that apple. He gets home and his wife is upset. Seems that the cat drank all of their milk. That's <laughs> odd because the cat would never drink the milk and hasn't done that before. Totally out of character. But then Joe sees the cat and it's lying on the wig. This part of the story is even more incredible than the haunted wig. Why would you have an honest cat in the story? <laughs> I have a cat that breaks into my apartment like every day, as I've mentioned. They are by nature criminals. The superlative of burglar is actually cat burglar. That yeah. means you're really good at it. However, and this line is awesome. This particular cat, the author tells us, is the meekest of mousers, the honestest, the least scattled of the feline race, a cat that one would have sworn might have been trusted with untold fish. <laughs> Could be trusted. In what scenario is being painted here? We're like, all right, we got a room full of fish. <laughs> but there's an emergency next door. We got to go watch their kids. Can we trust the cat in here? So Joe, never before has he raised a hand to this cat, but this time he hits the cat hard on the head and the cat does not like that. So attacks Joe back, scratching his face and then running away. I was pleased with this because it continues the grand HP Podcraft edition of being horrible to cats. It does. Which has been a recurring theme over the years. Well, and the cat's getting revenge. You can't just hit a cat and get away with it. I think it must be something about weird fiction authors that they're both incredibly frightened of but incredibly impressed <laughs> by cats it's sort of like these terrible gods the cat is this easy test case too this must be a holdover from when they burned cats in the mid medieval times or something that people are ambivalent enough you know in your reanimator let's try it on the cat first or <laughs> pet cemetery sure you know try it on the cat first this is actually pet cemetery all over again here sometimes bald is better <laughs> I was wondering about that, actually. There's a weird, like, historical thing here, because wigs used to be the norm, right? Everyone wore right. wigs. A wig was the sign of authority, or the wig... It was just standard. It was part of people's outfit, even if they weren't bald, right? And then they became a thing thing to laugh at when they flew off people's heads in silent movies, <laughs> or someone was pretending not to have one on. And then, like, now, if someone was bald and I was trying to hide it or something like that, I would def that would be wrong. I, I wouldn't bald shame someone, you know? Yeah. So I just wonder if there's a sort of fundamental historical cycle that we go through as a, as a species that we, we find them funny and then it stops being funny and then it's, you know, maybe one day it'll be hilarious again. I don't know. Well, as long as it's associated with status, I think that this is a story that's like punching up. Uh, Whereas yeah. when people wear wigs because they want to be a different person, you don't even need to be bald. You know, you, you can wear a wig just because you want to express a different part of yourself. It's a, sure. If it's about expression, it's not really funny. But if somebody's like, I got a better wig than you, and then gives their <laughs> old wig to a guy who's sweating out in the sun, that guy, the wig, become, you know, represents everything about people who can who can look better because they can afford more. And so yeah. I think as long, man, but talk about wigs blowing off of people's heads. You're right. That's still funny, man. I would watch a movie. If they had that in a trailer, I'd go see that movie. I don't really need to know much more. It was funny when you said it out loud. Joe's plight continues day after day, night after night. Joe Washford's life became a burden to him. His natural, upright, and honest mind struggled hard against the frailty of human nature. He was ever restless and uneasy. His frank, open, manly look that blanched not from the gaze of the spectator was no more. A sly, 
and sinister expression had usurped the place of it. So one day, Jarvis sees Joe working out in the hot sun, but he's not wearing the wig. Where's the wig I gave you, Joe? And Joe's like, well, it tickled my neck until it was sore. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't like it. And then Jarvis, indignant, says, if you don't wear it, then I'll have it back. And Joe could see, oh, okay, like, I've hurt this dude's feelings. He goes, yeah, actually, no, I, I took it off because it was raining and I didn't want it to get wet. But I still have it. I have it here with me. And he puts it back on. He doesn't even want it. <laughs> no. He's saying that to punish Joe. Yeah. Also, you're talking about the political commentary of the story is that wealthy people think that poor people need something. Right. And they're just clueless. It's like, he does not need a wig. Why do you think he needs a wig? Because you want a wig. And then even the fact that you think that he wants a wig, you're giving him your crappy old wig. It, you know what, oddly, it reminds me of is back when we did Fairy Month, we did a mention of a story that was Revolt of the Evil Fairies that was about a racially segregated school. Oh, right, it was yeah. an all-black school that was funded funded by white people who felt like they were doing something nice. And then when they do the play, who's the front row reserved for it? But the white people. So this thing is nominally for upward mobility to educate folks, and then they're still putting themselves ahead of it. It completely misses the point. Yeah. Jarvis seems pleased that he's wearing the wig and leaves. And just then, the neighbor, Mr. Jenkins, comes by and comments on how lovely these flowers are. And he says, you know, Jarvis probably wouldn't mind if I took a few. And Joe goes, uh, yeah, he would mind. He's mad that I'm not wearing this wig. <laughs> so he's not going to give you a tulip. And this neighbor's been coveting it, you know, these tulips for some time. It goes into some detail that Jerry Jarvis did not really mean to grow awesome tulips. He doesn't really care that much about it. It just, he, he got lucky with this batch mm -hmm. and he still wouldn't give them to his horticulturally obsessed neighbor. So Mr. Jenkins offers Joe half a crown and Joe looks the other way. From that hour, he was the fiends. <laughs> I just want a, a, a light on that moment that how weird it is to have a little scene in this story about trying to steal your neighbor's tulips. It's just, <laughs> it's just very odd. I just, I just wanted to mention that that, that is not a. It's just so strange. It's, it's never mentioned again. You know, no. like, and like of all the crimes he's describing that Joe does, yeah. there's a bunch of other ones we're, we're about to describe. Yeah. But it appears to be the tulip turning the other way when the tulip thief turns up uh -huh. appears to be his kind of original sin, which is. <laughs> Which is weird. <laughs> it is. It I is. think it must be a biblical thing, maybe, because the Garden of Eden is him coming out of innocence. But you do still have a choice. We're all born with that original sin, according to this doctrine. He does make a choice here to look the other way. And it has to do with a neighbor coveting another neighbor's goods. Mm. So maybe that's why it's so terrible. Maybe. But. <laughs> These are kind of hilarious sins. Because because Adam and Eve did invite the devil into the Garden of Eden and said, help yourself to the tulips. That's right. <laughs> I'll look the other way. Now, this crime spree continues. Mrs. Witherspoon's lovely nighty disappeared, and Joe now has a lovely Sunday shirt that he wore to the Appledore Independent Meeting House, which is where they have their church services. Others were missing things as well. Farmer Johnson's tobacco box, Farmer Jackson's great coat, Miss Jackson's hymn book. This is strange. Joe Washford. There he sat, grave, sedate, and motionless, all save that restless, troublesome, fidgety little pigtail attached to his wig, which nothing could keep quiet or prevent from tickling and interfering with Miss Thompson's curls as she sat back to back with Joe in the adjoining pew. After the third Sunday, Nancy Thompson eloped with the tall recruiting sergeant of the Connaught Rangers. 
<laughs> it's influencing other people to sin in some kind of avatar-like connection, a hair to hair. It's past the <laughs> dirty impulses along. James Cameron Avatar, not Airbender. That's right. Okay. James Cameron Avatar. <laughs> Summer and autumn pass, and Christmas time is at hand. We have a new guy, Mr. Moneypenny, who is heading off to home after spending some time with some kids. <laughs> you made me laugh that you wrote that in the synopsis because he had just delivered a baby. So is that what you call hanging out with some kids? I think it's a little more intense than that. Why not? I think he's a pharmacist or something, which is why it doesn't say he's Mr. Moneypenny. But it was a long delivery, and he's headed home on his horse for some rest, get some tea and muffins. And suddenly, for some reason, his horse, Peggy, doesn't want to go. And he can't do anything to get her to budge. So he dismounts. The description of that horse being an arsehole and not doing what it's told <laughs> is absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> It's an entire paragraph. It starts with, right, bear in mind that this is a paragraph about horses being assholes. It Uh starts like this. (laughs) Mr. Geoffrey Gambardo, the illustrious master of the horse to the Doge of Venice, tells us in his far-famed treatise on the art equestrian that the most... And that's how it starts. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a whole other paragraph of that. It's it's amazing, uh, actually. It's probably my favourite paragraph in the the entire story because it's just... He really camps out on this this horse. Budge, quotes the doctor. Budge not, quotes the fiend. It it, it quotes some Latin. Yeah, he's sort of saying if if a horse could talk in this moment, then it would definitely be saying no. (laughs) It did go on a long time. It was funny. It's funny, though, because at the end of it, I went, yeah, that's, you know, that's so true. Because the last time I rode a horse, it stopped. I couldn't do anything. So I was frustrated by this. But in the end, I was like, you really can't. If they don't want to drink, they won't do it. That's what happened. Yeah. Brought the horse to some water and he wouldn't drink it. I couldn't believe I was living in the inside of that for a moment. No, and actually, it, it, what he comes to is quite where he's sort of saying that you want to go one way, the horse wants to go another, and he says you end up splitting the difference, <laughs> where the party's compromised by not going any way at all, which I think is very funny. <laughs> it was good. It's a good line. Now, Bunny Penny discovers that maybe this is why the horse is distressed. A man in a red waistcoat is passed out in the bushes, and he yells at the man for scaring his horse. The longest cold open for law and order ever. <laughs> It takes him so long to work this out. (laughs) (laughs) A long time. He's shouting at this guy for ages. Yeah, and after (laughs) shouting at this drunk guy for a while, he goes over to the man, he pulls on him to wake him up, but then he realizes that he's not passed out, he's dead. He is a murdered man. And it seems that he was robbed and his throat was slit. His pockets are all turned out, but in his hand, that hand had manifestly clutched some article with all the spasmic energy of a dying grasp. It was an old wig. (laughs) (laughs) So the perp is caught and a trial is to be held in 1761. The defendant is a bald man. The victim, Humphrey Bourne, a rich guy who had more money than he knew what to do with. Who is on trial, you ask? Joe. Turns out that Jarvis did the autopsy and discovered that it was his old wig that was clutched in the dead man's hand. I love how it's the autopsy is when he discovered. I mean, obviously the first guy, he's holding a wig in his hand, but he's like, upon doing an autopsy, that's my wig. Like we also discovered this, we did an autopsy, he's wearing a wedding ring. Like these are, are, are these things you need an autopsy to discover? Maybe an olden days autopsy was just having a really good look at something. Like- and they hadn't invented dictaphones yet, so there's no point in taking too long. It's just, subject is male, wearing trousers, and ooh, isn't that my wiggy's got? 
Well, I think we've done everything we can here. <laughs> it says, why prolong the painful scene? Joe Washford was tried. Joe Washford was convicted. Joe Washford was hanged. The fate of the wig itself is somewhat doubtful. Nobody seems to have recollected with any degree of precision what became of it. Mr. Inglesby had heard that when thrown into the fire by the court keeper, after whizzing and fizzling and performing all sorts of supernatural antics and contortions, it at length whirled up the chimney with a bang that was taken for the explosion of one of the Feversham powder mills twenty miles off, while others insinuate that in the great storm which took place on the night when Mr. Jeremiah Jarvis went to his long home, wherever that may happen to be, and the whole of the marsh appeared as one broad sheet of flame, something that looked very like a fiery wig, perhaps a miniature comet, it had unquestionably a tail, was seen careering in the blaze and seeming to ride on the whirlwind and direct the storm. Wow, this thing got powerful. Magical. <laughs> That's the end of the story. The The image of a wig flying off into the sky like a comet is pretty great. Pretty good. I think that there are possibilities for sequels, like maybe in the post-credits, the wig is backstage at Hamilton. Or, you know, <laughs> something along those lines. It lives on! I was wondering whether it might be like the ending of From Hell, and the wig flies backwards and forwards in time, possessing all of the other famous wigs through history. Boom, we got Elton John, Joey Pantoliano, John Travolta. Uh, ben Franklin, let's build an army and march on heaven to kill God. Wow. Wow. Oh, man. We never saw it coming. It was in the wig. Uh, the wig is the thing. Do you have any closing thoughts on Jerry Jarvis's wig, Jamie, after you've read this? Like I say, I'm I'm conflicted. I, I When I first read it, I think I emailed you just saying this story is mental. Yes. But having read it a few... We read it a few more times. I kind of love it, and I kind of want to read a bit more of the Ingoldsby uh, legends, because it does seem so beamed from elsewhere, just completely mm. doesn't really bear any comparisons to anything. And, and, and I think it's quite clear that it was an influence on a bunch of stuff as well. Like the Wikipedia article talks about all the various allusions that it's, uh, that, that, you know, books that it's uh, allude to it. Like it's the only book Alan Quatermain has ever read, he says. He's read the Bible <laughs> and he's read the Inglesby legends. And, and there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff like that. It was a kind of cultural touchstone. So it's one of those things that people hear about through other works of literature, but tend not to go for themselves because I'm sure when they open it and read it they're met with this kind of wall of crazy talk mm. but yeah I, I, I do think he's uh, he's kind of fascinating and appalling at the same time to me <laughs> so yeah it was, it was really fun to go through it with you it's great when you can read something from so long ago and it still functions there's stuff that's wild and out there but then just commonplace jokes that are pretty funny including the setup itself which I think is very relatable so I was glad we could have a look at this. I want to thank Rafe Ball for reading. Oh my gosh, Rafe does amazing stuff. And Rafe, actually, he does a lot of LibriVox readings. So if you want to hear Rafe do some more readings, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, that's all we have for this week. Next week, we're going to be taking on a story called The Apparition of Mrs. Veal, which is also really interesting, both modern and pretty antique. It's going to be fun to talk about. That's all we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Jamie Britton. And you've been listening to Strange Studies, The Strange Stories at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Hppodcraft.com.